Let's pray. Father, thank you for those words, for your word. Give us ears to hear what we need to this morning. May we be good soil for your word, to hear it and receive it and to bear fruit in our lives. That would please you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes you can find a treasure by accident in a bunch of rubble. That's what happened in the 1980s in the Democratic Republic of the Congo when a young girl was playing in a bunch of rubble outside of her uncle's house. And this rubble was basically a big pile that had been discarded by a local diamond mining company because they thought it was too bulky to scan for diamonds. Well, they were wrong. (laughs) Because as this girl was playing amongst the rubble, she finds a diamond, a huge diamond. And she gives it to her uncle, who then sells it to somebody, who then sells it to somebody, and so on and so on. And after a lot of selling, a lot of studying this diamond, years of studying this diamond, cutting this diamond, uh, it became the world's most, the the world's largest internally flawless diamond. It's called the incomparable, is the name of the diamond. It's actually in French, you gotta say it, but I'm not gonna torture you with my French accent. It's really bad. Even though I lived in Switzerland, in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, I should know better. But eventually the diamond was incorporated into a necklace that looks like a vine, a grapevine, and it hangs, the, the incomparable hangs from the stem of this. And so now it's the incomparable necklace, and it's now said to be worth $55 million. <laughs> Sometimes you find a treasure in the rubble. Sometimes the treasure you find just makes everything else look like rubble. And that's what happened with Paul, what we read in Philippians. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look there. And this starts, what we heard him saying right off the bat, it's something like his resume he's giving here. For reasons to have confidence in the flesh, his accomplishments, he says, look, if anyone has reason to boast, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So this this would be the resume Paul would have given, been extremely proud of before he met Jesus. So yeah, he came from good stock. He's of the people of God. And of a special tribe, even, in the people of God. The tribe of Benjamin. He was a stellar example of these people. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. He went all the way. He says he was trained as a Pharisee. And actually, he was trained in the school under the teaching of Gamaliel. That would have been the Harvard of his day for his people. The best of the best. And he had a ton of ambition. He was an ambitious guy, and that didn't stop after he was a Christian. But... He said he went out and captured, imprisoned, beat, 
people who he saw as threatening his faith, uh, the Jewish faith, namely Christians at the time. Now that's something he eventually repented of. In another letter to the Corinthian church, he said, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So this is something he eventually repented of, regretted deeply. And yeah, I love that a few weeks ago, I think it was Ingrid during the prayers of the people, prayed that this would happen to Putin. Pray that too. He needs to repent or he needs to be stopped. But back to Paul. He goes on to say, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Now, it's interesting, he says this right after he said he persecuted the church. So he's already cueing you into a deficiency in this blamelessness under the law. It was a blind blamelessness. But Paul, he's arguing this as a, a larger argument that we don't have time to get into. But for our purposes today, just to know that Paul at one time would have thought that these things were things to be proud of, things to boast about, things to put on his resume. If he was writing the gains and losses of his life, if he was doing, say, the, the Schedule D, not of his taxes, but of his life, he would have listed these as gains. He'd have written them down all as gains. But after meeting Jesus, he switched those and wrote them down as losses. He wrote, whatever used to be gain to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I now consider everything as a loss because of compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, his Lord. For his sake, he says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Using accounting language here, gains and losses. The gains of his life, what he thought were the things that were impressive about himself, his own accomplishments, those now he considers losses. More than that, he considers everything as loss, more than loss, as rubbish, what you throw out, what human, human waste, basically, compared to what he's gained in Christ. So now Jesus and his accomplishments and what he shares with Paul, those are now on his resume. They are now the gains of his life because he's come to know the surpassing worth, the overwhelming value of knowing this person, Jesus. That's what's rocked his world, changed his resume, his gains and losses. So Paul's like that little girl who's, who's playing in the rubble, right? But Paul used to play, he used to play with all these cool looking rocks. He thought they were the best until he came across this stone, this internally, externally too, flawless stone, the incomparable, the incomparable Christ, right? Compared to this treasure, everything else just seems like rubble like rubbish, really, Paul says. He goes further. Now, everything in itself is not rubble or rubbish. Everything is 
can be, lots of things are gifts from God, right? That we can be thankful for, that we don't need to treat with contempt. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's doing something called a comparison. And so he's like, compared to Jesus, that's what these things are. Compared to Jesus, they are like rubber. He's, he's reaching for the strongest language he can use. So compared to them, they're like rubble. Paul, and so because of this, because he's experienced Jesus in this way, like this incomparable diamond, all he wants to do now is to get to know him. And to get to know him more. So he says, well, he says to get to know him. To know in the Bible, though, it's important to know knowing, of course, is not just like getting information about somebody, like you might get in a lecture. Knowing in the Bible, when it says knowing, that's more like the intimate, experiential, personal knowing you have in a good friendship or in a good marriage. That's the kind of knowing Paul's talking about and wants more of with Jesus. The Navigators, a parachurch organization, summarize what they do along these lines. To know Christ... And to make him known and to help others do the same. I was never part of Navigators, but I heard that in my undergrad and I just locked onto that. And that became pretty much the motto, the rule of my life. That's what I want to do. I want to know him. I want to make him known in the way I live, in the way I talk, and help others do the same. Paul said it another way. He said he, he wants to be found in Christ. Now, this is language. He's harking back to the, the poem in chapter 2, this famous poem we mentioned a few weeks ago and that we're going to actually come back to next week. And in the middle of the poem, it says, Christ was found in human form. Paul says, I want to be found in him, in his human form, in his new humanity. That's where he wants to be found. In Christ, though, this is one of his favorite ways of talking about being a Christian of the Christian life. And this is baptism language. This is about being baptized into Christ. Paul just doesn't want to know that theoretically. He wants to know that experientially. What does it mean to be baptized into, soaked with Jesus in his new humanity? That's what he wants to know. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. And all that comes with that. So therefore, he goes on. He says, I want to know the, this righteousness we have, not according to the law, that blind righteousness he had before, but the righteousness that comes to us in Christ by faith. That righteousness where God says over us when we are in Christ, you are in the right. You are righteous. You are just. Another version of that is, in Christ, God says over us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom my soul delights. Paul wants to know the meaning of those words. He wants to know those by experience in the Holy Spirit. That's what he's after. He goes on to say other things he wants to know, and he lists them in this poetic form. He says this, I want to know Christ, yes, 
to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow, in some way, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. It's a packed little, really, poem, a chiastic poem. That's a, in Hebrew poetry, that, what that is is that you list these themes and words up to a certain point, and then you list them again in reversed order. It's a very common form in Hebrew poetry. And so this poem has four main lines. The first line is highlighting, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The second line is talking about the cross of Jesus. And then it starts reversing it. Then the cross of Jesus is mentioned again, and then finally the resurrection. So resurrection, cross, cross, resurrection. That's what he's doing here. So he starts with resurrection. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. He doesn't want to know the doctrine that's important, that Christ really did rise from the dead. He wants to know about the power that did that in Christ in this age, before he dies. He wants to get a taste of that, of those powers of the age to come that bring life out of death. And of course, this is really relevant for us because everything around us eventually deteriorates and comes to an end. Paul wants to know the power of his resurrection in those circumstances when he experiences death in different ways, and we do too. Paul, he goes on, he says, I want to know that power, and I want to participate in the sufferings of Christ. So, of course, he wants to receive all the good things that come to him, come to us through the sufferings of Jesus. That forgiveness, as much of the forgiveness and adoption and newness and newness of life, that power of life, Paul wants that. He wants to participate in that. And more than that, he wants to know what it is like to suffer like Christ. Writer-poet George MacDonald once said, the Son of God suffered unto death, not that men and women might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. So Paul says, I want to become like him in his death. I want to suffer like he suffered. Everybody suffers. That's a constant in human existence. I suffer, therefore I am a human, we could say. But not everybody suffers like Jesus for the sake of others. Not everybody suffers by pouring out their lives for others. That's what Paul wants. He wants to know that. He wants to participate in that, becoming like him in that self-denying, self-giving death. But with Jesus, it's not just suffering all the time. It's not just the cross all the time. With Jesus, it's cross and resurrection. Cross and resurrection are two sides of the same person in Jesus. Therefore, to know him is to know both of those things. At times, it's going to mean self-denying, self-giving in a situation. At other times, it's going to be receiving the power of that resurrection life that he offers us. Paul wants to know that power. He wants to know that power again in this day, in this age. And then he's looking forward to that day also when God will raise us from the dead 
from the corpses is actually the literal translation in this passage. He's going to raise us from the corpses, from the dead, and give us these new, glorious, imperishable, permanent bodies. Paul says he hasn't received all this yet. Certainly hasn't received the resurrection, but he still hasn't even received all that he could receive in this life. He says, I'm not there yet, but I've tasted enough that I know I want more, and I'm going for it. So he writes, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of that upward call of God in Christ. So this is upward, there's a prize, there's a, a treasure from God in Christ to us. And Paul has tasted enough to say, I'm, I'm going for it. I'm willing to put everything here directed towards this. I'm ready to suffer all things for this. He's tasted enough of Christ to give his life to knowing him. To knowing the power of that resurrection that healed his literal, his sight. When he was blind, he was enabled to see again. That power that enabled him to preach when he was stoned and left for dead. That power of that resurrection that enables him to live that self-denying, self-giving way of Jesus. To live suffering like him, dying like him. Paul went from someone who imposed violence on other people, who beat them, who persecuted and imprisoned them, to someone who was willing to receive that himself for the sake of others, so that they could know Christ like he did. Paul is one of the most powerful examples of someone who gave himself to knowing Christ and to making him known, not just in his words, in his letters, but also in the way he lived. As those words that were at least attributed to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel always and use words when necessary. And the more we're going to come to know Jesus for ourselves, the more we're going to understand why Paul did this, why he gave his life to this. Our our lives aren't going to be necessarily as dramatic as Paul's. (laughs) They might be for some of us, but for most of us, probably not. That doesn't matter. What matters is coming to know Christ experientially. The more we do that, the more we lives our, live our lives in him, baptized into him, soaked with him and his new humanity, the more the resume of our life is going to change from our accomplishments to his. The more our gains and losses are going to change. We're going to rewrite those like Paul did with Christ as our greatest gain. And the more we are going to want to know 
this incomparable Christ and to make him known and help others do the same. Maybe so.